Welcome to the Good Friends of Jackson Elias, an occasional podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films, and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Dolwood. And I'm Matt Sanderson. And this show is all about what we've learned from other GMs. In other words, how to steal the good stuff they do and claim it's your own. So this is direct from experience. We're not talking about in theory or what you could do. This is things that we've actually seen at the table that we've learned from and tried to take away with us to use for our own uh, benefit and the benefit of those at our table. And and to claim as our own ideas. Well, absolutely, Mm -hmm. yes. But tonight we're going to give away our secrets and attribute those that have uh, taught us. No, Scott's looking confused. We haven't thought this through. We we just haven't thought this through. Damn, we we know nothing. (laughs) But some people are going to get named and shamed really quick, I'm thinking. No, no shame. This is all good stuff. This This is praise to the people that we've learned from. So, do you want to kick us off, Scott? Yes, you do. Yes, nothing would give me greater pleasure. Well, I'm going to start off with a fairly simple one, and it's actually a fairly obvious technique. Uh, It's something I've seen done many times since then, something I've done myself. But this is just going back to the first time I saw it done, I guess, as formally as I'm going to mention. Uh, There is a chap who used to go to the Milton Keynes Club, sadly he moved up to Edinburgh a while back, called Kevin White, uh, who was one of the founder members of the Milton Keynes Club, uh, and an old friend of yours, Paul. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, And, yeah, he ran, in fact, probably the first World of Darkness game I ever played many years ago, uh, which was uh, Vampire the Requiem, back when uh, that first came out. Back in 2005. We're playing our normal eight-week campaign at the block, and... This was a fairly classic World of Darkness thing in that we were playing newly turned vampires. In fact, this was, sorry, thinking about it, this was before Vampire the Requiem had officially come out. This was the quick play guide that had just come out that had the pre-gen characters and so on in it. Oh, wow. So, 04 then. Yeah, something like that. And so, um, what Kevin did uh, was, you know, focused very much on our characters, made it about our characters' transitions into the world of, you know, the greater vampire conspiracies at large. And sort of, as well, saying goodbye to our old human lives. And so, you know, at times there were scenes that we had um, with the the NPCs who had been important to our characters before uh, their embrace. Is that the right word? Before their embrace. Uh, And um, these NPCs trying to work out sort of why their their old family members or friends were acting so strangely and distant and so on. And it was really quite cool stuff. But instead of having what were effectively a lot of one-on-one scenes with the other players sitting around just watching, what Kevin would do would basically be to write down the names of all the NPCs and a little bit of information about them on index cards and just hand them out to the other players at the table. And just say, right, you're, you know, for this scene, you're playing so-and-so, you're playing so-and-so, this is the stuff you need to know, you know, go. And just basically gave us carte blanche to play these characters however we wanted. Uh, we ended up with a bit of ownership over the NPCs, and when they came back into play, it was the same players playing them over and over again. 
I don't think they were ever statted up, they never had any mechanical impact on the game, but it was just a good simple technique that kept the uh, everyone who was at the table involved, even if they, their characters weren't. And, yeah, it, it, as I said, it's probably something a lot of you have done or some variant of, but I'd never seen it done quite so smoothly before. Uh, and so the formalised process of you own these NPCs now just worked very well. So, yeah, I mean, it's a technique I've seen used at the table probably subsequently. Um, and the thing I've always found is that, so there's one player with his player character, his or her player character, and the other players are playing NPCs that relate to that one character. The thing I found when you're given, you know, you're playing um, the, the, the player character's sister, you're playing the player character's boss, whatever, it seems very liberating for the player. They've got no constraints and they just play it however they see fit and they, yes. they really run with it much quicker than they do when you give them a fully fledged player character. Yeah. And it, as a player, it's quite liberating doing that for the same reason, particularly as uh, there aren't any mechanics necessarily involved. I mean, you know, by all means, you can do this as a fully generated character. But if there aren't any mechanics involved and you're just playing out these scenes that are you know, largely freeform, then yes, it is completely liberating. And you know you're a kind of secondary character, so you kind of you can get up in the face of the player character and you know you're kind of expendable. Um, but at the same time, you're kind of an important thing to that player character. I, and also the the strange little ideas that you bring in, or the quirks, or mm. perhaps an agenda that you know no one knew the NPC had that you suddenly come up with and push, can suddenly shape the game. Uh, I think it's probably important if you do that that you give you know the the player character involved in the GM some degree of veto, so that you know if if their grandmother suddenly turns out to be you know a, a psychopath, yes, or a psychopath with with aims of world domination or something like that, then. Yeah, that that might not quite suit the game. Uh, so you might want to just say, no, can you try that again, please? Right. Well, continuing with the uh, World of Darkness theme, my first example I can think of um, goes back again to that sim similar kind of time frame when I was doing a lot of LARPing. Um, it was actually starting off playing Vampire LARP that I got, that got into gaming. And a dear friend of mine, uh, Chris Grice, who was the first person to run run games for me, um, he took me under his wing to set up a, actually the first Vampire Requiem game in the Milton Keynes area at that point. The first task he set me to do was to go through the old Vampire the Masquerade book, take all the categories of influence that you could have that could define a city, and then create four or five different NPC write-ups for, um, for each sector. Um, give them a short one line, give them an advantage, a disadvantage, like a weakness or something that someone could use as a hook to gain control of that NPC. Not worrying about stats, but worrying about the actual person and the occupation behind them. And then when we got everyone together for the first character generation um, session, to bring them into a room one at a time and explain what type of people they used for any influences that they had on their sheet, and then match those up to the pre-listed um, characters that I'd written up, but then, where possible, make sure that different people were pulling on the same person. Nice. So that you could have multiple people trying to um, trying to influence this poor city official, like, for instance, four or five people having access to the mayor's secretary and all getting the poor girl to do what, um, to do things that were conflicting against each other, Excellent. and then seeing what happened as a result. <laughs> so, yeah, ha having, having clashes like that in the background that players don't necessarily, or characters don't necessarily know about, was quite a lot of fun. Okay, well, uh, the one that occurs to me is very much a technique... Kiri Birch's technique of GMing. 
this boils down to one simple thing of not sitting down. Mm. Uh, so typically at convention games, um, there's a bunch of players sat in their chairs and the, the keeper or GM is sat at the end of the table and nobody gets up and moves about or maybe, you know, they get up and move around a little bit and then come back to the table. Kiri would maybe start running the game standing up, but then he'd move around behind the players. And that's, it's kind of disconcerting. And it also means that he can come up and whisper in your ear or just sit down somewhere else. And I think um, whenever we go to a, you know, if you go to, if you game weekly somewhere, you can bet that everybody sits in the same places. If you get, if you meet in the same place, like we meet at Milton Keynes Role Playing Games Club, and there's a chair, you know, that Jeff sits in, there's a chair that Paul sits in, there's a chair that Matt sits in, and they'll tend to sit in the same seats every week. If you walk into your game next week and sit in a different chair, people might not say anything, but they'll be a bit disconcerted. They'll be like, why are you sat in my chair? Yep, so I think this. any break in the familiar situation breeds a bit of uncertainty. And by Kiri not doing the usual thing that a GM does of just sitting there in his chair and talking and actually getting up and walking around is particularly good for a kind of Call of Cthulhu horror game because it breeds that kind of uncertainty and, you know, he's able to raise and lower his voice behind you. And it's not that he's trying to make you jump, but it's just a an unusual technique. Well, I, I think there's possibly even a bit more to it than that. I, the, the simple fact that he's standing up when everyone else is sitting down establishes a form of dominance to begin with. You know, it's a very simple, I think, human thing, though. You know, you physically and metaphorically look up to people who are taller than you. And you know, if you're all sitting down there and Kiri's standing up, then you, know, you are looking up to him. Uh, and and the, also the way that he moves around the table, there's something almost quite predatory about the way he does it. I, I think it stirs up this very animal reaction. Yeah, you bring in an image of a group of sheep being uh, stalked by uh, by a wolf now, yeah. really, sort of going around the table. Yes, yeah, and he exactly. picks one off, <laughs> the, the weakest one. And that player is never seen again. <laughs> Although I would... Um, put in a word of caution here. I've adopted this technique at a, a, um, a convention game. Just watch out for people who tip their chairs forward, <laughs> and then when you walk up to them, sit back to listen to you. <laughs> Naming no names, Matt Nixon. <laughs> but when they sit back and put their weight through the chair leg onto your foot, yeah, you ow, know about it. Ow, ow, ow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Oh, Kiri, shouldn't be the problem. Oh, okay. Yeah, I must admit, I, after seeing Kiri's example, I did that for a while as well. Uh, but I, I am, I'm too old and fat to get away with it now. <laughs> it knackers me if I do that for a convention game. So. Well, you do run every slot at a convention, Scott, so that's yeah. probably why. Yeah, take it easy. And yet when I get up, it's normally to go to the players and say, right, what cocktail would you like this time? We're about halfway through a game. I feel like a drink. <laughs> that's the technique in itself right there, Matt. Yeah, yeah. Getting your players drunk. I haven't adopted that one as yet. It makes up for one of a shit game. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the, this, this is why everyone speaks so highly of a game, because they're too pissed to know otherwise. <laughs> and I am not going to complain if they say... <laughs> <laughs> So we're thinking of GM techniques that we've uh, experienced and admired and have adopted into our own games, perhaps, or that we're taking inspiration from. 
There's another friend of mine who coincidentally ran another World of Darkness game, which I don't think you were involved with. Uh, this is Trudy, Trudy Topham. Uh, she ran a werewolf, uh, the, yeah, it was Werewolf the Forsaken, uh, back when that first came out. Again, we started out as mortal characters before our first transformations into werewolves, and what Trudy decided she wanted to do was create very much our human lives and our human interactions before we got into all the weird shit that went with werewolf. Uh, and so we decided, or you know, she decided, that we were just going to freeform these bits. The first two or three sessions, we had no mechanics in them whatsoever. Two uh, or three sessions? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, well, I mean, we, we didn't really create our I can't remember whether we created our characters on paper at that stage or whether we just had the concepts, but we knew who they were mortally and so on. And so we just sat down and played those characters and freeformed them. And again, you know, because the characters hadn't even met at this stage, uh, this was basically a lot of focus scenes with individual characters. And so, you know, um, Trudy or the player would sort of suggest some NPCs who might be there, uh, and the other players would sort of jump in and say, oh, you know, how about if I play, you know, your best friend or something like that, and, you know, we're going down to the pub together or something like that, and, 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 you know, we, we just play out that scene. Um, and by the time we'd been through a couple of sessions of that, we knew exactly who all these characters were. And that created a very strong foundation for the campaign, which unfortunately ended up petering out for other reasons. But uh, yeah, I mean, that, that actually ended up being the best part of the game. Hmm. Well, I can riff off um, going back to the MKRPG uh, group in particular. Um, one of the GMs there, again, who's also moved away. We have a tendency to kick people out or they end up moving away for some reason. What, what is it we say to or do to them? I, uh, I, I actually go out of my way to scare a lot of people off. Well, I know you do. But <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, Matt, I'm not sure we'd kick anyone out. <laughs> mutter, mutter, anyway. Well, <laughs> maybe the odd one. <laughs> we'll all keep very quiet about that. <laughs> but, but anyway, no, one, um, one particular GM, also a good uh, staple on the convention scene, James Mullen. Um, everyone nods at this point. The poor microphone doesn't pick up the nodding. <laughs> the, the, the nods of reverence. <laughs> yes, he's, he's on my list as well. Ah, there you go. Um, in which case, are you going to talk about um, how I saved the world on the path to enlightenment? Probably not. Ah, okay. Right, the, the, the over-the-edge game you ran no. at the club. Ah, no, I'm not. Um, I think you, you did play in that one, though. I, I did. Yes. yes. Yeah, I did. Yeah. Oh, we all did. Hey, there yeah, we go. We Mem memory lane. Um, in which case, this this will definitely go well Uh well, for both of you then, um, what was the thing that I did pretty much at every session as soon as uh, as soon as we started play? Decoding handouts. That's the one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I I think we've heard my opinion on this subject in earlier episodes. So yeah, I'll, I'll leave this to you, Matt. Oh, no, I I thoroughly enjoyed it. It's um, another GM as well has done it, so I can wrap the two examples into one. That at the last continuum that we went to. Uh, Paul Lawrence, who ran a steampunk Cthulhu game. Um, a lot of fun, um, incidentally, sort of a raid on the, the downright unusual mountains of madness. Um, yeah, so very, very, very funny. That uh, One of the things that he provided us with throughout the opening half of the adventure were um, telegrams. And after picking up a few of these, there were common themes between various ones that thinking, hang on a minute, this is this has got to mean something, that they, this is a code of some kind. 
and it was I think myself and Alina that was sat down that um, sat down at one corner of the table, hoarded all the clues, and then probably said, "Right, how does this thing work? There's a pattern in the in the watermarks here, and hang on a minute, this spells out a message. If you take the underlined uh, code and such, ah, <laughs> and, you know, I, I love puzzle solving. That's and, right, your street man. I know yeah. you love yeah. that stuff. I remember a game that Rick did that had Viking runes in it, and you know I couldn't really make head or tail of them, but I gave them out in one game at the club, and uh, Terry, the guy who did Viking reenactment, oh, yes. just looked at them and pretty much just read them off the page. <laughs> <laughs> so what was meant to be cryptic wasn't really cryptic at all. Uh. But, uh, yeah, so beware of that. But yeah, some people are very good at that sort of thing, and some, some not so much. Well, yeah, if sometimes being good at it is nothing to do with it. I, if if you're going to use this as a GM technique, please, for the love of God, check with your players whether they find it fun. Mm-hmm. If you ever do this in a game with me, I will fucking end you. <laughs> you love um, it, Scott. Now I can think. Um, I think uh, Neil's had this discussion, Neil Smith, where he said, especially in games like Amber where he creates a character that would be a puzzle master. He, as the player, doesn't want to be able to sit down and work out puzzles. He just says, my character solves it. Yes. Yeah. Which, personally, I think is boring and kind of waste uh, not waste my time, but kind of cuts out a lot of the enjoyment for me. But that's that's different styles. Yes. Yeah, that's the bit you yes. like. That's, yeah, fine. that's exactly the same way as I feel about solving the fucking puzzles. <laughs> just because you spent three hours trying to decode something in one game. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yes, I did. <laughs> Okay, my next one uh, was about 10 years ago when I was at um, Gen Con in London, I think, um, at the Olympia in 2003. Rick and uh, Wim were, were kind of double-handing a game with about eight players. And, uh, it involved a plane, an aeroplane crashing with the players on board. Uh, luckily, some of us did survive. Oh, is this the Milan conference? Yeah. Right? Yes. Yeah. And he just used a really simple technique, which sounds doesn't really sound like that big a deal but it had quite an effect on me all he did was grab the table and shake it um (laughs) to simulate the the airplane going down and it was just enough that it kind of you know kind of jarred you and kind of made you feel the actual physical sensation it's it's very different to just somebody sort of saying oh and the plane's going down and things are falling when the actual table's rattling and the dice are rolling around and yeah it's good well, I mean, little bits of physicality like that can make a difference. I mean, I've certainly, for example, expressed loud noises at the table by suddenly slamming my hand on mm. it or slamming a book down, which, you know, it gets everyone jumping, but it, it, it suddenly feels like a very real, tangible thing. And I, I remember, again, a very, very small thing uh, was at a Dead of Night game that I ran a long time back, uh, where... Someone was talking about how their character was trying to break into a deserted warehouse, uh, and they were, you know, clambering up in a box and looking in through this dusty window and trying to clear the dust off the window to see what was inside. And I uh, said, and, you know, do I see anything in there? And yeah, I think I was standing up, so I just, you know, gently bent down, so I was almost nose to nose him. I said, I said, yes, there's a face. And he just about jumped out of his skin. <laughs> It was great. Uh, I was thinking definitely loud noise is definitely your thing in games as well. <laughs> They're screaming, Mammals! at the top of your voice when running um, primetime adventures so the whole of York House could hear you. <laughs> <laughs> I think a bit of theatricality goes quite a long way to take the players mm. out of just sitting there. If I mean, the, the, not the worst thing you can do, but a fairly bland thing to do is to sort of sit there and, and not really alter your voice when you're, when you're GM. So... Um, you know, if you deliver it all in a kind of same tone, um, but if you if you're able to sort of 
either take on the voices or just modulate your voice to loud to quiet to harsh to soft oh, um, and, and picking up the pace of your voice to you know, to try to describe panicky situations mm-hmm. yeah you know, if i'm trying to describe a situation in which you know the players are trying to react quickly and don't know what's going on i will speak in lots of staccato broken sentences pick up the pace you know repeat little bits here and there and just try to convey that sense of panic and i mean i think i have to combine another um GM I've got on my list really because this one's going into the same area this is something that Mike uh, Mike Mason does well um, doing voices of NPCs and kind of um, sometimes turning on the kind of intimidation factor of the NPC or kind of yelling at you in a kind of uh, aggressive manner um, it just kind of jars you and sort of makes you think oh bloody hell um, you know this guy is angry with me or, or whatever uh, whereas if he just says, oh, you know, the guy's really angry and he, he shouts at you sort of yeah. saying, no, no, stop. It, yeah. it doesn't have the same impact. No, I mean, just because you're GMing doesn't mean you shouldn't roleplay. Yeah, get, absolutely. Get, get into the character of the NPC and, yeah, don't describe their emotions, show them. Yeah. Hmm. yeah. Show, not tell. So, more GM gold that we've picked up at the gaming table. Well, seeing as we've mentioned James Mullen, uh, yes, I, I, I'll, I'll add to the Mullen love here. <laughs> uh, one, I, this is kind of an odd technique, and it's something that's very particularly James, but uh, has, has certainly inspired me a few times, which is, you know, James, because he is a game designer as well and writes his own games, when he runs games, he's very free to change the mechanics. I mean, not just like house rules, but he'll he'll tailor the mechanics of a particular uh, game to the campaign that he wants to run uh, and hack them around. I mean, you know, plenty of GMs do that, but James has got a particular gift for it. Uh, and like I say, it's not it's not just house rules. It's just sort of a question of you know what tone am I trying to convey here? You know, I want to use that of night but yeah it let, let's give a concrete example he used dead of night to run a campaign uh at the club and it's still the only dead of night campaign that i know of which was a, a zombie apocalypse uh game uh that he ran about well, must have been five or six years ago and yeah he basically wrote a, a whole series of mechanics to support campaign play to make certain recurring items and artifacts important to the game and stuff like that and they completely changed the tone of dead and right they made it i you know dead and right will work for short campaigns without modification but he he turned it into something that was much more campaign capable and it it really worked and I certainly that that's inspired me, and you know I, I, I've I've hacked around the mechanics of games that I've run since then, you know, quite a lot, you know, particularly Dead of Night and Hot War, you know, as I've been running uh, Time and Tide a lot more at conventions. I mean, that's mutated into you know a very heavily changed Hot War system, and I'd I'd never have done that, if, you know, I hadn't been you know playing with with James all those times. Oh, think, thinking of modifications, mentally not so much to the mechanics, but to the sheets in games. Um, this is Paul Lawrence who gets uh, fame here again. Um, he ran a... I can't remember what the setting is. It's one of the monographs, I think End Times. The futuristic setting that he had was very much dominated by corporations and big business. So it had a, was a Blade Runner or Alien theme running uh, running in the background. But this involved us going off to um, a research station and, and stuff started happening there. And every time we took a particularly large sand hit, then he would take our sheets off us and give um, give another sheet back that was slightly tweaked 
in a few places. Some skills had changed, some had been removed completely. And then in certain places that had been removed, there was a running message that started to gradually um, unfold throughout the more crazy you went. You got this information coming to you. Um, well, I like that. Oh, mm. it was it was really good. I mean, it did say afterwards, a bit like when he'd run the, um, the downright unusual Mountains of Madness, one with all the handouts, that he spent more time doing the handouts than he did doing the rest of the game prep because mm. it was so work-intensive. But sure. it had a remarkable payoff. I mean, oh, a really wow. good payoff. Oh, well, I like the sound of that. Yeah, actually altering the sheets um, as, as you play through sanity. Yeah, that's... Yeah, you'd need to warn your players about that, or at least you'll warn them they're going to get different sheets, I think. Because if I'm playing convention games, I'll write all my notes about what's going on at the bottom of my character sheet. <laughs> <laughs> if someone takes that off me, I'm lost. I don't know who anyone is. Uh, yeah, they, these are all laminated, I think. They just seem similar uh, kind of trick. That, oh, that, that's another uh, technique. That laminating know. sheets? Who would do that? <laughs> I can't imagine who. Who uses that in every game he runs at conventions now. <laughs> um, but now I, th- I can't remember who I picked that up from. Um, yeah, it, it escapes Maybe me. it was you, Matt. No, no, it was it was something that someone else had done. That it was then that it was just because they wiped clean all the handouts afterwards. I think that's yeah. my problem with printing everything over and over and over again. Solved. Yeah. Just throw it under a tap and it's done. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I must admit it's liberating to be able to get any bodily fluids you want on the character sheet and not have to worry about it. Moving on. <laughs> please, please return us to sanity, Paul. <laughs> Uh, this is a technique that I saw a GM using for ga- wrapping up games. Uh, when a story was kind of had sort of played its course, if it's a game without a big climactic scene, so you're not kind of going to the temple and casting the spell and you know stopping the the baddies summoning their 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 elder god or whatever, there's no big climactic scene. But there's a situation and it comes to resolution without a climax. And sometimes that feels like the end of the game. Yes, I'm looking at you, Mr. Dorwood. This is one of yours. Uh, So the epilogue. So when you've played out a story and it kind of feels like that's the end, really. You know, the the players wouldn't stay together now. You know, what would... So Scott will say, okay, well, let's... You know, let's let's conclude the game there. That seems like a fitting ending. Now let's uh, just do an epilogue for your character, Matt, and then we'll talk about what happens to your character. Maybe they got on a train and they're going to tour America uh, hunting down werewolves. Or, or, or I, get, gonna... I get on the Simplon Orient Express looking for this <laughs> statue. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then we go around to uh, the next character and, you know, maybe they're going to be locked away in an asylum uh, or whatever the, the, the situation is. But it just... It was so much more satisfactory than ending many games, even if they do come to a climax, because often it's, you know, when we're talking about a kind of one-off situation or, or, a, or a campaign, you get to the end and, yeah, it's all sort of finished, pack your things up, go home, and you never talk about it again, maybe. But being able to sort of say what happens to your character and sort of have a sense of closure from that and, and sort of focusing the spotlight on you for a few minutes and exploring what your character does and... Um, I mean, it's just a, an improvised thing between the keeper and the player. Maybe the other players chip in. Um, but, uh, yeah, I found it a really rewarding experience, and that's something I've used, you know, quite a bit to good effect. 
Yeah, I can't remember where I stole it from. I, I, I certainly didn't come up with it myself. I, I, I nicked it from someone else. And it, I, I've got a feeling it was a technique in a game I played at some point in the stage, rather, you know, the mechanics of the game, rather than um, something that I saw another keeper do. Um, and and I, yeah, I want to say it was something like Primetime Adventures, but it wasn't. Uh, but yeah, I'm sure there was some game I played where you had epilogues for your characters afterwards, and I just thought that's a good idea. I'm going to do that with all my con games now. Yeah, it's it's something I've picked up and done as well, especially and to some extent actually, it's those moments that end up being the ones that kind of linger in your memory, maybe because it's the last the last thing you um, get in the game. This episode, we're looking at things that we've stolen from other GMs, and not just their lunch money. Building up on something that you were talking about with the multiple character sheets. Um, again, it's a very simple technique, but a very effective one. Uh, which was, uh, the first time I encountered it was Andrew Kenrick running Dead of Night at a convention about six or seven years ago. And it was a campaign with a high mortality, oh, sorry, a, a one-shot with a fairly high mortality rate. A very, very dangerous one. So he just had a stack of characters printed out, you know, fairly simple characters in the centre of the table. And, you know, each one of them had uh, fewer survival points than normal. Uh, and the idea was this was going to be like a splatter movie. Our characters would die the whole time. And each time one of our characters died, we'd just pick up the next one from the pile in the centre of the table. And so, uh, I mean, that ended up in a lot of ways feeling more like a horror film than most other one-shots I've played because, you know, the structure of a one-shot game tends to be quite different in that you're, you're looking perhaps to have some climax that involves all the characters. I mean, you may kill off one or two beforehand, but it's unusual. Uh, because you, you don't want their stories to end, you know, and, and have the players just sitting there twiddling their thumbs. Yeah, that's always a concern. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but, yeah, having all these disposable characters there just meant, yeah, okay, your, your character gets eaten by the black slime. Uh, fair enough. Right, pick up this next one. Okay. <laughs> Sounds great. Yeah. And because of the survival point mechanism in Dead of Night, that next character has got a slightly shorter fuse before they go? No, each one had their own pool of survival points. Oh, okay. So, um, yeah, the way survival points work in Dead of Night is they sort of work a bit like hit points, but you use them for other mechanical benefits in the game as well. And when you run out of survival points, your plot immunity is gone and anything can kill you. But uh, you, you normally have five in a Dead of Night game, but these ones, I think these characters only had something like one or two. Right. So, so yeah. they were short, <laughs> they were designed to be short lived. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, that's fantastic! I like the sound of that. Yeah, and then you count up how many um, how many they get through at the end of the adventure, and the person that's got the most sheets gets a prize. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, should definitely do that. <laughs> it's almost like gaming cards against humanity. It's how many card, how many sheets have you got? How many black cards? <laughs> and my next one is a pretty straightforward one, uh, and has to do with just creating characters on the fly. I have the privilege of sitting in with the father of Call of Cthulhu, Sandy Peterson. I don't know. I don't want to call him lazy, but he doesn't bother doing pregens for his game. No, he does something <laughs> better than that. He gives you a blank character sheet and just says, you know, this is what you spend on on your uh, characteristics, and this is what you spend on skills. Mike and I stole that for the seventh ed uh, rule book and for the uh, quick start rules. So that was something taken directly from Sandy. The whole thing of uh, you know, you've got one at 72, at 63, at 50, and so on, and you just put those down, and then you've got so many points. Well, no, it doesn't give you a pool of points. He just says, okay, and you've also got 
Uh, I don't remember the specific numbers. Maybe you got one skill at 72 at 63 at 50. That that same kind of uh, pattern. And you just bump those down. Don't bother adding on the base score because I mean, adding on the base score to your skill points was a fundamental part of uh, character creation in Call of Cthulhu. But Sandy just figured we don't need to do that. Here's the point. Here's the the total values. Just stick those in the boxes, and within a few minutes, you're ready to go. Yeah. Uh, and it's a great technique. I mean, I use it as well, you know, now that you've put out those quick start rules. I use it for creating pre-gens for uh, Call of Cthulhu games uh, for mm. conventions because it's just so much quicker than sitting down and doing it by the full rules. Mm. Well, one from the very early days of my gaming career, back when I was living in New York, uh, the, the GM I played with the most out there uh, was um, a chap by the name of Bill Keats. And uh, Bill... Bill is a fantastic GM. I've not played with him for 25 years, but I've still got fond memories of his games. He largely ran champions, and we played the hell out of that uh, during the 80s. And uh, the thing that he did, which um, was new to me, admittedly, you know, the, I'd, I'd not done that much GMing before. Almost all the GMing that I'd done at that stage was pre-written scenarios, particularly uh, the Chaosium Call of Cthulhu publications, you know, a couple of the campaigns and a, a few of the one-shots. Uh, and Bill largely wrote his own stuff, but he also adapted a number of uh, published champion scenarios. But you know what what he did, which I hadn't seen anyone do before then, which you know I now realize is a fairly standard thing, uh, was that he would take these pre-written scenarios and hack them around and modify them, make them tailor them to his campaign, make them fit the characters, and you know rewrite them again, you know, putting in elements of uh, the NPCs that were already established, the important NPCs to the uh, to the players. Um, and and basically turn these these published scenarios into things that were about our existing characters, so we still always felt like the star of the game. Oh, that's yeah, that sound of that. Um, and yeah, I, it was. I, he must have put in almost as much work on doing that as the stuff that he wrote himself. Um, but yeah, the, the the end result was that we ended up with this very you know fluid. Um, continuous campaign that again, yeah, we 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 always felt like we were the stars of. So it, if he'd have taken Mask of Nalathotep and uh, and adapted it for your group, there may never have been a Jackson Elias. It would have been another character that your friends, an, another NPC that your characters were already friends with. Yeah, or you're really unlucky and you're Jackson Elias. <laughs> oh. <laughs> In a way, aren't we all Jackson Elias? <laughs> He's a nice guy. <laughs> Yeah, for a few weeks preceding the adventure, you keep getting mail for Jackson Elias coming through your door to that flat you've taken on in New York. Oh, that'd be lovely. God help you if you play, end up playing Starkweather. Oh. <laughs> I, well, you could do you could do something along the lines of uh, Roman Polanski's film The Tenant, where you move into Jackson Elias's flat uh, and you start developing the the delusion that you are Jackson Elias. I sense a convention scenario. I'm Jackson Elias, and so is my wife. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's the I am Spartacus moment. I am Elias. <laughs> you can't kill us all. Oh, hang on. No, you can. <laughs> the good friends of Jackson Elias now have a Patreon page. Think of it as an electronic donation box to help with the running costs of the show. The podcast will remain free, and donations are entirely voluntary. Follow the Patreon link on blasphemoustomes.com Thanks for listening!
Many years ago, I was in a game of uh, Middle Earth role-playing game uh, with uh, an old friend of mine by the name of Chris Marsden, who GM'd for us. And we were playing a group of... Well, we played several groups of different characters scattered around Middle Earth. I think we had one group that were hobbits, and sometimes we'd do scenes with the hobbits. Another time we had a group that went to Rivendell. And it was all kind of based around kind of noble, good uh, characters. And then one time he sort of said... Uh, hey, let's take a break, and uh, why don't you guys play these? And he gave out these goblin characters. And they were attacking, like, this um, farm and stuff like that, and running around, and we were just having a whale of a time, just like the, the shackles were off, and we no longer had to be good and noble characters. So we were just running around, killing people, <laughs> and, and, you know, riding on uh, wags and shooting bows and killing all these poor innocent people. But... You know, for a time, because it didn't matter, we just had a, a great game. Um, and then I think, you know, maybe we stopped and had lunch and then came back to the game. And uh, he gives us back our, our regular characters and, you know, we're, we're um, you know, back on the mission. And, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're doing this, you know, long journey as people always do in Middle Earth, going across lots of well-described countryside and scenery. And uh, we're going to visit, uh, you know, a, a, the family of one of the player characters. But of course, you know what? When we get there, this farmstead <laughs> has been devastated. And there's all these dead corpses lying around and, uh, you know, the odd well, dead to, goblin. To, to be fair, that's a lot less disturbing than if they weren't dead corpses. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, we were like, oh, none of us saw it coming. I mean, it might sound <laughs> obvious in retrospect when I recount it, but at the time it was like, you bastard. <laughs> <laughs> but the moral of the story is the bad guys are more fun to play. <laughs> well, in that situation they were. Yeah. Um, and I think it just comes down to misdirection. Um, that he was able to catch us completely off guard and let us and and just draw us in so well to and it, the fact is we enjoyed it so much that was what made it so great. <laughs> oh, it's beautiful, delicious, yeah. delicious irony. Yeah, I mean he loved that stuff. So one fairly simple thing I've seen Graham Bomsley do a few times, uh, which it never quite occurred to me to do in the same way. Again, it's a fairly straightforward thing. Is just the act of breaking the fourth wall and uh, interacting with the players as players as part of the game every now and then. So uh, I, I'm trying to think of a concrete example. I, if he gets to something that's you know perhaps contentious in the game or something where he's not quite sure whether it's going to be fun for everyone, um, and you know he's perhaps improvising a bit of the game at that stage or improvising some of the events, you know he'll sometimes just stop and say, yeah, look, if if such and such happened, would that work for you? Yeah, okay, right, and then just carry on and 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 do that uh rather than just you know checking and assuming that that's going to work for everyone at the table which i i mean it's not it's not a technique you want to use too much because obviously it's going to take you out of the game but if you're you know checking to see whether you're moving into territory that's going to upset players or uh if you're going to do something that's going to you know completely deprotagonize someone's character for a while or something like that then you know actually breaking the game for a moment and checking that actually works out surprisingly well yeah, I, I can see that being a bit of a double edged potentially a double edged sword because if especially if you're making a hook into um, or making a scenario around something that is quite a delicate issue or something sensitive then by flagging that, especially if you did it ahead of time, like saying, by the way, this game involves child abuse or whatever, and you put it up on the sign-up sheet, then you're 
almost um, giving away that reveal a bit too soon. No, I mean, this this isn't quite that. I mean, this is, you know, the same thing on a much smaller scale. It's if, you know, it, 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 it works much more, I think, with games where, you know, it's, it's much more impro- improvised structure and, you know, mm-hmm. less that it's prepared. But it's just sort of, you know, are you okay if I take the game here right now? You know, oh, in an improvised about the direction yeah. that it yeah. takes rather than the themes necessarily. Yeah. yeah. Mm, that's why, yeah. yeah, basically, I never run an improvised game. I've not got that, uh, not got the confidence or the or the cojones to do it. So, oh, you have, Matt, and you do all the time. <laughs> no, yeah. I, everything that I tend to run is ridiculously um, plotted and planned, and yeah, but you're quite able to go off the rails with it. Oh, I have yeah. to when you play. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, was, I was about to say, yeah, I, I, I remember derailing your what was it edge of midnight game oh, so spectacularly <laughs> that you ended up having to improvise pretty much the whole campaign yes yes i did I <laughs> but nobody that realizes one. that at the table that's oh, the key thing no I, th- I think i think they knew i think actually you were in that game paul i think but i, I think we, i think we all knew by the way matt started crying <laughs> Don't let me out of here! Which, one's, which one's Edge of Midnight? Uh, it's where you're playing like an alternate 1950s kind of uh, noir setting, um, end up revolving around the lights of the Manhattan Project uh, because it creates this alternate world up in the abyss. No, I don't think I was in that one. Yes, yes, you were. Was I? Okay. Yeah, I was in that one. I remember it well, actually. Yeah, it was good. I try to forget that game. <laughs> this is why I give people drinks at my game table. So if anything like that happens again, then they won't remember it. <laughs> I think I think it was three sessions before I broke the game world, wasn't it? Yeah, about that. <laughs> Out of an eight-session game. <laughs> well, my last one is just a very simple thing of uh, good props. And um, I was in a game uh, one time based in... Southern America, I think, either South America or the Southern United States, uh, based around Aztec or Mayan. I'm looking at you, Matt. Yeah, I think and I knew where this was Out going. of your bag, <laughs> you draw this kind of soapstone statue, maybe, about, well, must have weighed several pounds. Yeah, it's about a foot tall. <laughs> yeah, and, uh, you know, this is what you find. Clunk. Uh, and, you know, much better than a handout that's just an image of it, there's the actual thing. Um, and, yeah, I mean, that was, that was just made all the more memorable because one of the players who had just happened to sign up for the game seemed to be a professor in Mayan studies or something and could tell you everything about that statue and the culture it came from and the history of it and yeah. the symbol, the, what it symbolised. And luckily, I knew that Matt would know all of that because if it had been me that had got that figure out, I would have just made a load of stuff up about it. I've had no idea what it actually was. I'd have just yeah. made stuff up. Same Matt, way. I knew, would have it all thoroughly researched and not be thrown by the, what this woman was saying but uh, it was pretty damn impressive yeah I, I just ended for that example I just threw the handout over my shoulder and just said yeah, yeah. But who needs a handout list listen <laughs> yeah, I, think I could see you getting the handout out it was like a whole page of A4 or yep. a couple of pages and, and she just reeled it all off without looking at it that was amazing yeah, so here's where Kotlaku fits into the Aztec pantheon the origin stories uh, and so on and so forth yeah who, who needs handouts <laughs> <laughs> but wasn't the most disturbing thing about that statue the way that it kept turning up on your bedside table every night after that? <laughs> well, it was more that Matt was sat there holding it. <laughs> uh, I've, I've done that with a few things. I mean, not 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 at the end, <laughs> not at the end, not at the end of your bed, admittedly. I've heard about this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's, it's not been the same since the injunctions, has it, Matt? <laughs> yeah, but we don't talk about that either. There's still the lawsuit. Yeah. Um, but no, I've used props like that uh, in different games, like um, Kachina dolls I've used 
um, and so um, and so forth in games. Uh, I think I ended up using a clay tablet in, in another one. Um, books I've used. Mm. Um, um, actually, uh, that could lead into an example of mine, <laughs> ironically enough, actually, where one GM, um, lovely guy who runs uh, World of Darkness Mortals down in Hatfield, Paul Regan, um, for about ten years ago, designed a prop that was just going to be thrown into a game that could then be a seed to whatever the um, whatever the player was going to do. Um, he would then craft the story in reaction to what they were going to do with this thing. So it was basically a seed that didn't have any kind of motive or backstory behind it. He put this into an auction and no one brought the item. So he had this thing sitting around in his house for about 10 years, and I think it ended up moving between various different people's houses as they were looking after this thing, hoping that one day it would work its way into a game. And it finally turned up in our last Mortals game. Um, this pot that was stood in um, that after... T- must be about 10 months or so of trying to research and lead to this point of finding this one item the prop finally got used mm. which was a huge um, like a huge uh, like ceremonial pot with a wax seal that we had to break open pour out the contents which was full of seeds inside um, the sea inside amongst all this huge amount of seeds was a clay st- uh, terracotta clay statuette that he had um, put in a kiln having inscribed various numbers on the outside, we then had to smash into this thing, completely <laughs> destroy it to remove a metal con- a metal container that had a parchment inside that contained even more numbers. <laughs> wow. That sounds yeah, pretty cool. Yeah, that puts my, li- my little putting a statue onto the table into a, a whole different league. <laughs> Next time you give me one of those, I'm going to smash it <laughs> and see what's inside. <laughs> mental note, keep that on my shelf. <laughs> Didn't you end up making a clay disc for Gatsby? <laughs> yeah, I did, yeah. Yeah, it was a slight step up from the first one, which I made out of a cornflake pot. <laughs> I remember that, the, uh, the cardboard bits. I remember Matt Nixon's face when I got it out of my bag. <laughs> like, what the fuck? Especially as you're a potter. Yeah, I'm, I'm terrible at props. I'm just so lazy. Um... Yeah, I'm not sure I've ever made one. I, I, I barely even make handouts. We hope that's been of some use to you. It's certainly been fun for us going down memory lane and you know remembering all the little bits that we've stolen from from other GMs and uh, the misery you've caused them. Yes, yeah. <laughs> oh, it's given me a few ideas. I must say, hearing you guys uh, talking about some of the anecdotes and uh, ideas, so. it makes me think that the theme that I was sort of spotting when I was preparing for this is that. The things that I remember as being interesting are things that have um, taken my attention away from sitting at a table being in a role-playing game. So it's elements of theatricality, it's props, it's, you know, uh, maybe, um, you know, like the rattling of the table, the, the, the yelling of the voice, the or, or maybe the whispering, but, but something that kind of, um, that, that draws my attention beyond just looking at a paper and rolling dice. It's, it takes yes. me out of that. It's like a good, you know, going to a, a good piece of theatre or something. It kind of, you get lost in it, you get immersed in it. And those little elements help with that. Yeah. They, 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 well, I think it's not so much they they make you forget that you're playing the game, but they draw you more into the game. Yeah, yeah. So that wraps it up for another week. And with that, it's good night from me. Cheerio from me. And farewell from me. Blasphemous Tomes.com mm-hmm.
And now here's another one of them. (laughs) 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 No, it fucking wasn't. (laughs) 